This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 12th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting again this week from Phoenix, and we'll be looking at a few things that have gone on the area of federal taxes in the past week. One of the interesting things that happened this week was the IRS issued another set of information letters. So a lot of what we'll be looking at this week will be related to information letters that came out this week. This is where the IRS responds to quite often the staff member of a congressperson, or they respond directly to a taxpayer related to some question that is posed to them. And we can get some views into how the IRS looks at things and maybe some useful explanations to provide to clients who we all know sometimes, you know, wonder if, well, I wonder if you're really right about that, but they never doubt if you can give them something printed on IRS letterhead. So these information letters in a backdoor way kind of help you with obvious things, but things that you need the client to say, yeah, you really do know what you're talking about on this issue. Okay, we'll start though with first, the Taxpayer Advocate Service announced this week that they will not be accepting any assistance requests regarding standalone advanced child tax credit cases. Uh, and we'll talk about what that means in their case. We also have the issue here of IRS tax agents, tax home, uh, where that was located. Now, because of the changes in the law, employee business expenses don't really matter much to us anymore. But what still matters to us, though, is tax home because for self-employed individuals or for reimbursing employees, tax home still an issue. So we're going to take a look at why did this IRS agent end up with a tax home that wasn't where he wanted it to be for purposes of travel. Now to the information letters, we'll start looking at a letter the IRS wrote to a FSA participant, actually indirectly via a senator, and wanted to know about the use of debit cards with flexible spending accounts for medical FSAs, and more to the point as to can the employer really request them to give a bunch of additional documents to back up the expenditure? I mean, is it really in of their business? And, you know, can they really go ahead and effectively deactivate my debit card if I refuse to provide it? Next up, the IRS explains in response to a question from a representative's office why Forms 1099-R don't specifically have a coding that maybe said, you know, qualified charitable distribution and show the entire amount paid as non-taxable. Why is it just coded like any other distribution? And we'll get at least the IRS's explanation on why the 1099-R does not have a QCD coding. Finally, the IRS will discuss on behalf of a letter received from a taxpayer who is looking for a ruling a couple of issues. First, the nature of legal expenses that are, and more importantly, are not deductible, with an actual list of three examples of non-deductible legal expenses. Then secondly, we'll also have the IRS explain how if you really want a ruling, you have to go through the formal private letter ruling process in order to get a ruling and all the IRS can provide otherwise will be generic advice and kind of helpful to remind people when clients call up or even I've had other CPAs said, well, I called the IRS and they said X. Well, that's 
great, but as far as relying upon that, that's a lot riskier in that case. And so we need to kind of understand uh, the issue there. So let's start out with the Taxpayer Advocate Service. And this is TAS Memorandum, TAS-13-0721-0009. Titled Interim Guidance Advanced Child Tax Credit, issued on July the 2nd of this year. Now, the Taxpayer Advocate Service Office, National Office, has sent out a memorandum to the offices around the country. And they're making it very clear because, as you should be aware, uh, actually this week, funds should begin arriving in taxpayers' bank accounts related to the advance payment of the child tax credit that was added by the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. What's going to happen is over the next six months, the taxpayers are supposed to have deposited each month one-sixth, essentially, of one-half of the child tax credit they would get under the new law based on the information the IRS has from either the 2019 or 2020 return. Now, as you can imagine, with this getting started and people looking for money, you've got to believe that there will be people who, where it doesn't come through, or they've been trying to opt out and it's gone the bank account anyway, or a thousand other situations where taxpayers will be jamming the phone lines, trying to get some sort of IRS assistance related to this new program or get IRS explanations related to the program. Well, obviously, the Taxpayer Advocate Service kind of saw this coming and realized that they'd better get ahead of this one slightly. And what they're saying is, if the basic question is standalone, I didn't get my advanced, my child tax credit, you know, or I, you know, I got it, I want to opt out, or, well, I haven't filed in the past and, you know, and I need to get in and can you help me? The answer is going to be that they are not going to basically take those cases. They will rather recommend the taxpayers take a look at other IRS options. So the memo kind of says, well, be understanding, but we are not going to take this on. We, we can't really do that. They said the reason why is if the issue is a standalone issue, there's nothing else stopping the taxpayer from getting the credit or turning off the credit, aside from the fact that they just need to go through the standard IRS procedures, the TAS says we really cannot expedite or improve assistance to taxpayers in that situation. In essence, and I think their argument would probably be, if I was going to guess, that if they actually began to take all of those on, they would simply become a very small, effectively, because of the number of employees involved, addition to the IRS overall phone lines that are being asked this question, and it would effectively take out the TAS from doing anything else. I'm guessing that's probably why they've come to this conclusion. They did, however, said if there is some other issue that is preventing the taxpayer from getting their advanced child tax credit, maybe something with outstanding balances, uh, you know, some sort of issue, some things that should be taken care of in the IRS records that are preventing this from happening, that's more than just I'm a non-file, I haven't had to file in recent years and need to get on the non-filer site or otherwise have an issue that, yes, the mere fact that an advanced child tax credit might be impacted by this other problem will not stop the Taxpayer Advocate Service from taking on the project, including helping to resolve eventually the advanced child tax credit 
portion of that problem. But if the problem is solely getting an advanced child tax credit, then yeah, they're, they're not going to be doing that. And as I said, they do note in the memo the various online resources uh, and phones, which probably won't work, uh, for the IRS for doing this. Now, I realize a real problem that we've run into in many cases is that some of our clients are not computer savvy. Some of them don't have computers or they're not very good at dealing with them. And so this online provides a kind of a block to getting in and getting things done. I know that. I also know the phone lines are jammed up forever. It's not a good thing. The only flip side of it is that I guess you could kind of say, although clients will not like to hear this, is that first, you know, until March 11th, this credit was not, these payments were not coming to you. And secondly, if you don't get the credits during 2021, you are still going to qualify for the proper amount of advanced child tax credit on your 21 return. So it's not as if you're losing out on the money forever. And conceivably, you might save yourself from having to do some payback if it turns out that 2021, you're not going to qualify for the amount of credit that might have appeared to be what you would qualify for based on your 2020 return. So yeah, we'll have to deal with that. Expect there to be problems in this area. Expect there to be issues and expect phone calls to start beginning on the 15th when clients want to know why they didn't see the check. Next up, this is our one tax court case of the week. And this particular case looks at an IRS agent. Right? This is the case of Wark versus Commissioner. Hopefully I pronounced this gentleman's name right. Tax Court Summary Opinion 2021-18. And the opinion came down on the 8th of July. In this particular case, and this happens every so often, it's always kind of amusing to see cases that involve IRS agents going to the tax court. Also, attorneys and CPAs are a bit fun here, too, because you're kind of looking at, well, it's usually not good in many of these cases when they get to tax court. Uh, usually with the attorney and CPA, you discover they really don't do tax work. And so they're trying to learn it on the fly for their own return. And IRS agents, yeah, you know, if you've gotten this far along and the national office and you know, is still willing to go to trial, odds are, yeah, you, you may have an issue here. So we'll talk about this. This was a case of this taxpayer as well. This taxpayer originally in 2009 accepted a job in California with the IRS, despite the fact that he lived in Las Vegas. So the taxpayer took a job. He knew the only assignment, the assignment the IRS had available, the position they had that he could fill was going to be in California, a you know, and not just right across next door from where he lived in Las Vegas. We were talking about having to go a bit of a distance to that office in California. Now, I should say to be fair, this, this case, in some ways, the way it was argued, implied that the taxpayer uh, just started taking this position for his travel after he gets this application for hardship transfer. Uh, project going, although the court did note in passing that while those earlier years when he claimed the deduction were not before the court, uh, in those years, which were before he ever got this hardship transfer that becomes the hardship transfer program 
that becomes the crux of his argument in this case. He was still claiming these deductions. So bottom line, you know, that's probably, to be totally honest, to a bad fact. Courts don't like the fact that, you know, you seem to have your, your position seems to be grasping at straws based on what you've got right now. You know, if it looked like you were doing it in the past, the court may conclude that you were just playing the audit lottery in prior years. And OK, you might have this justification, but clearly it's not the real one because you thought previously you could take this deduction anyway, or at least you thought you could try to get away with taking it. So we see how it goes. Now, in 2014, he applied for what was called a hardship transfer inside the IRS. Now, the way the program works is described inside of the case, they tell us. This does not mean you get a transfer if your application is approved. What it means is, let's say that I'm currently in it with the IRS. I'm living here in Phoenix but I'm working in an office, let's say I got assigned because this was the only opening they had, to an office in San Diego. Well, I could apply if I wanted to for a hardship transfer, that there is a reason why, you know, I should, you know, I need to come back to Phoenix, well, or actually just be in Phoenix's case. So something happened. Maybe it's that I have a disabled parent now who I need to be able to assist. Uh, during the week. It may be various other reasons, but I can apply for that. Now, applying for that, the IRS considers, you know, is your reasons, do your reasons appear to be acceptable under the program? But if they decide they are, what does not happen is an immediate transfer to the location you're asking to go to. Rather, you are put on a list that will be known whenever that office is looking to fill a position for which you would be qualified, you know, and I'd assume probably you'd be qualified and at the same pay grade. And so all of those issues, if a position becomes open, then we will go ahead and consider you. It doesn't even say, even if a position comes open, that you'd be qualified for that the office, in this case in Las Vegas, would actually have to hire him. They might choose somebody else for a different reason. So what happens here is, yes, he was approved for all but one of the years he was on the list, but he never actually got a transfer. And as the court noted, he was never guaranteed a transfer. Now, the concept of tax home is important because under Section 162A of the Code, you're allowed a deduction for business expenses for uh, for any period for which the taxpayer is away from home and with home being the tax home. Now, as I said, because of 67G that was added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we actually these days have fewer issues, you know, it, because employees are not going to be able to claim those expenses on Schedule A largely because you can't claim miscellaneous itemized deductions and get a deduction for it, at least on the federal return. Some state returns might allow it, but federally it'll be blocked. But those expenses could still qualify for reimbursement by an employer as temporary living expenses related to a temporary assignment, or it could also come into play in certain cases for self-employed individuals who end up with a temporary assignment. 
you know, some, some job that they take on that's only temporarily away from their tax home and being able to claim that. So these rules are still important. And generally your tax home is considered, you know, what's kind of the, the place you normally would be performing your services. It's not necessarily the place and will normally not be the place you call home unless the place you call home, the city you call home, actually happens to be the same place that you have your, you know, your tax home in. So theoretically, if I'm looking at getting reimbursed for travel expenses away from my tax home, I'm not really looking at my residence here in Phoenix, but I'm looking at my office which is about a half mile away, and whether I'm going to be away from that tax home. For obvious reasons, in this case, with a half mile difference, there's not really going to be any place that would be away from my tax home that's not away from my residence. So the two would come out the same. But there could be, but, you know, but otherwise it's an issue. So for instance, if my tax home was in Tucson, I was working constantly in Tucson instead of Phoenix, then yes, Tucson would become the measuring area, not Phoenix, for purposes of temporary assignments away from tax home. In this case, the court found, look, his tax home remained in California. We go back to the standard problem. He was living in Las Vegas due to personal preference. That was where he was living before he got with the IRS. That's where he and I suppose his spouse wanted to continue living. Uh, you know, and it wasn't really that the reason he was not near his tax home and why he had to travel to that location regularly and also had to rent an apartment in that town where he lived in, you know, where he stayed during the week. Uh, the reason he had to do all those things was because he still, for personal reasons, wanted to remain living in Los Angeles. As we say, that makes this entire amount into commuting and personal expenses and non-deductible. The same thing would be true if we were talking about, you know, if let's say the employer was going to pay him for that travel, in that case, that pay would become taxable to the employee. And the, you know, and the use of that apartment nearby where he's going to be working would also be taxable income to the employee because again, it no longer qualifies for reimbursement and the standard rule under section 61 is that fringe benefits are taxable. I always love how people have never read 61 and noticed that it actually says taxable income is all income from all sources, including, and right up front, it's going to tell you fringe benefits are taxable. So it's kind of an interesting aside and that's how you would do it in this case. Similar problem is going to happen if you have, let's say a sole proprietor that ends up having to take a job out of town he will end up, he or she will end up with the same problem in terms of is it away from home, uh, you know, and that also goes down to whether it's truly temporary or of unex or unexpected, or let's say, unclear duration. And if it's unclear duration, then it's probably, you know, it's going to end up being treated as not away from home because if you have an indefinite assignment, that essentially becomes your tax home. We no longer have the link back to the other location as our tax home where we would normally be earning our income. So it's an interesting case on that regard. Next up, now we're going to go to our information letters. As I noted earlier, information letters are issued by the IRS. They are 
less formal than most other things you're going to see cited. But they do discuss some of the issues, and obviously they do go through the national office. And especially, to be totally honest, if it's going to a congressperson staff, you might think the IRS would like to uh, make sure they got this right and they're being consistent with with, the position they're taking otherwise. So while it really cannot be cited as precedent, it does give some interesting, you know, some insight into specific areas. And it also, as I noted at the beginning here, gives us something on IRS letterhead that says this is how this works, period, which I have often found will calm clients down who are saying, well, that can't be right. Are you sure? Where does it say that? You know, I don't believe it. I'm not doing it. And this particular one sounds almost exactly like a, I'm not doing this, they have no right kind of issue. This is information letter 2021-003. Now, the actual letter was issued to the senators, in this case, it's former Senator Loeffler of Georgia, was issued to her office on in December 14th of last year. So this letter went out then. And the issue her constituent had, her constituent is an employee of a company that sponsors a 125 cafeteria plan. And inside that plan is a medical flexible spending account. And that medical flexible spending account, as a lot of them are these days, the participant is issued a debit card. So, for instance, if I go into my local pharmacy, I'm refilling my prescription I, you know, when the charge comes up, I take out the debit card and I put that down and pay for the prescription that way. Now, in many cases, especially something like that, data may be transmitted back under that system that would identify this as paying for a prescription of various sorts, and that would be adequate to document. But let's say instead I went into that same store and I bought some medical supplies you know, various medical items, and I bought them just off the shelf. And, you know, your average, even your average kind of small pharmacy is still going to sell various things in the store that aren't medical deductible items, right? They, I mean, they're going to sell candy, they're going to sell various drinks, they're going to sell various other things. And if you're talking about the larger stores, the CVSs, the Walgreens, and those sorts of things out there, You know, you walk in there and you're going to see all kinds of food and other items. And yeah, there's some some place in the back they've got a pharmacy, but it looks almost, you know, it looks very close to just kind of a combination of something between a convenience store and a grocery store. Uh, That happens to have have a, a pharmacy desk in the back. And obviously in that case, you know, if all we've got is I've got a debit card that I bought various items at Walgreens, that might not have been eligible medical items. So, so this is going to be one of our key issues. So in this case, this was one of the problems. Her employer required her to provide additional substantiation, saying that, you know, we, we, we don't really, you know, in essence, we need additional substantiation of what you've been, what's going on here. Because we don't know that these expenses are eligible medical expenses. Now, she, of course, says it's none of your business, right? Come on, this is America. 
right? We, we, we don't, it's none of your business what I spent that money on. All you should care about is then go over the amount that, you know, that I was allowed to spend out of that and don't bug me. You have no right to invade my privacy. Okay. Well, the employer said, good. You have no right to have the debit card. Okay. The debit card was deactivated. Now, of course, you've got an angry constituent who's saying, as I said, this is America. You can't do this, right? Impossible. This cannot be the way it works. So the senator sent, the senator's office, not really the senator. In 99% of these cases, it's going to be the senator's office. They, they have constituent service staff that will process these things. They're probably not going to run every single one of these by the senator. You know, let's get the IRS response. If we, don't, we have a problem with the IRS response, then we may rope the senator in to try to put a little more pressure on. But otherwise, we're just going to get the response out of here. Right. So the IRS responded to the inquiry from the senator. And what the IRS told the senator's office was, look, the standard rules of a flexible spending account require that the administrator of the account be able to have complete documentation that funds expended from the FSA were used for proper medical purposes. And therefore, if what they get when the debit card charge goes through is not adequate to provide that documentation, and they note pretty clearly that is in the eyes of the sponsor, you know, the eyes of the administrator, if that does not provide adequate information, then the participant is required to provide substantiation to back that up. And if the participant refuses to provide substantiation, then under the rules that allow them to issue a debit card, in a case like this, they have to pull the card. And the employee is now going to have to actually submit documents for reimbursement instead of just getting reimbursed immediately by dropping in the debit card. And, you know, staying the real catch here, and I think this is part of the reason why uh, this becomes a problem, is that, remember, for a 125 plan, it is up to the sponsor and the administrator to assure the plan stays qualified. So that means if they're allowing participants to go out there and just, you know, hit the candy and snack aisle of Walgreens and, you know, buy all their stuff there and use the debit card to check out. They say, I see it's a charge from Walgreens. It's medical. They may find the entire program will be considered non-qualified with penalties and other items coming back to bug them, shall we say. So for various reasons, because they're responsible for this, the administrator has certain rights to enforce this. The idea also being this is a benefit that has been given to you contractually by the employer. In order to use this benefit, you've got to comply with the rules to use the benefit the employer gave you. If you don't follow those rules, you lose the benefit. America or not, you're going to have to you know, follow those rules. There is a right of contract, and they're saying, nope, nothing stops them from asking. In fact, they are legally mandated to do this because that's meant to stop abuses in the area. Now, the situation would be very different if what she had was a health savings account, an HSA, in that case, which, by the way, employers can fund that too. But the key difference in an HSA is 
compliance with the rules to for the taxation of the HSA and distribution from it all fall on the owner of the account. So in this case, if this had been a health savings account for her, uh, then in essence, no, the employer couldn't really ask for backup that she was spending this money on medical items because it's her account. She could just roll everything out of there to another HSA. She has a right to do that. But that means that if things go wrong, first thing is if if the IRS wants to look, they're not going to contact the HSA. They're going to contact her, and she has to provide documentation of the medical expenses. If she cannot at that point, then she gets stuck with tax and penalty and interest and everything else for the failure. But it would not affect the other employees that an employer may have funded an HSA for. Again, the FSA, because the, the plan sponsor sets up the administrator, and basically they're in charge of their plan, they now have the responsibility to run it. And I suspect that confusion over things like that may have been the reason why, well, you know, she doesn't understand why she has to do this because her neighbor has a credit, has a debit card for medical, which is on an HSA where, yeah, that's not required. So, yeah, it's quirky. And no, I don't expect the average non-tax person to understand the difference there. Or, you know, really be able to contemplate why one would be one answer, one the other. But it's the nature of the beast. That's how it works. FSAs have that issue. Next information letter, 2021-007. The actual letter was issued uh, to Representative uh, Chip Roy of Texas on April 26, 2021. And this is a more interesting question. I think this is one where the representative's office was asking for information, probably because they've gotten this question a couple of times, or could have even been one that has come from, you know, the representative himself. I'm not sure. I don't think he's quite old enough to do this. So, I, but yeah, again, unfortunately, I don't really pay a lot of attention to every representative. And although I'm sure I've seen Representative Roy uh, on TV at some point, I don't really recall him well enough to say, oh, yeah, he's over age 70 and a half, or no, he's not. So I probably not over, though, but, you know, maybe as parents, relatives, who knows? In any event, the question comes up and the congressman asked the question. Now, if you remember, we have special rules for qualified charitable distributions from IRAs. If you have an IRA, you can make a direct transfer from the IRA to a charity. That direct transfer will not be considered taxable on your return. So it will not appear as part of AGI. You obviously don't get a charitable contribution deduction then. You know, we're not going to be able to exclude it and then deduct it. But it basically bypasses. And that's useful because it gets around the issue of whether you itemized or not. Because you get this automatically. You don't have to burn up a chunk of your transfer uh, to get to your itemization level. And it also doesn't raise your AGI, which can cause problems in a lot of other areas because we have a lot of things triggered by the level of your AGI. Now, in order to do this, of course, you have to be past age 70 and a half when the transfer takes place. It's also important to remember, it's not just the year you attain 70 and a half. You have to actually have attained 70 and a half before you make this transfer. Once you've done that, you can do up to $100,000 per year is eligible to be transferred to the charity. If you're over age 72, because we just had this disconnect after Secure Act, used to be that the ages were the same, now they're different. But if you're at age 72 
or above and you're required to take RMDs, requirement distributions, this can count for the RMD purposes. Also, I should say because of the quirky way it works, if you've made contributions to your IRA after you reach age 70 and a half, then you have deductible contributions. Then there's a weird recapture when you try to do a QCD. So anyway, the QCD rules, though, we know kind of roughly how they work. The question was asked, though, and I've had clients ask this question. I had, you know, a couple of clients last year freak out about it. They, they made a, you know, direct transfer to a charity, right? So I transferred $30,000 to a charity from my IRA. There was no RMD last year for them. So, you know, they're looking at that. They get to the end of the year. A, they're not, they're thinking they shouldn't even get a 1099R from their custodian. And then B, if they do, it should show none of it is taxable. And yet, 1099R arrives, it shows 30,000 distribution, 30,000 taxable. Client is freaking because this wasn't supposed to be taxable and it's wrong. And they're, you know, they're calling up the broker, they're calling up everybody. And yeah, I've been down this road a few times. And I understand how they freak because they see the 1099 and they're going, well, wait, I don't need to pay tax on this. And I'm like, well, calm down, calm down. That's correct. However, the broker does not report this any differently. It's what it's now on your side. And the IRS said, look, there, there's a number of reasons why we don't have the, the broker or, you know, the custodian indicate a QCD style distribution at this point. And this has come from push from the financial institutions because they're thinking this too. Look, you know, they said, look, the broker cannot know if you have already taken $100,000 and transferred it to charities from other IRA accounts. Again, it's limited to $100,000 total. Uh, you know, they don't know how much of the distribution, if any, consisted of non-taxable money. Your custodian has no idea how much of the contributions to the IRA have been deductible and how much been non-deductible. So that also complicates their situation for identifying the proper QCD amount. And finally, if the charitable organization provided any goods or services for what was transferred, in essence, has the contribution been properly documented? Who knows all of those things? The owner of the IRA, the taxpayer. They're saying, look, what you have to do is you have to put that 30,000 distribution, gross distribution, you'd put zero in taxable and you'd write QCD next to the line. That tells the IRS that you're claiming a qualified charitable distribution. And just as with that HSA issue, it's going to be up to the taxpayer to provide the documentation to show that this qualified as a charitable distribution because they have all the information that will be necessary to make that determination. So the taxpayer really should be able to report these on the return and should be able to handle it. And that's the reason why they explained to the representative that your IRA doesn't show. You know, your IRA 1099R doesn't have some special code for QCD distribution. You know, I'm, it is something I suppose other of you have probably gotten this too from clients who just kind of freak out because you know, they're thinking it's not taxable and they're looking at 1099R that says taxable amount. And they just, yeah, they, they don't like that. Finally, we're going to consider information letter 2021-0012. And this one was to an unspecified taxpayer. Also came out on April the 23rd. Now, these letters are given to the taxpayers and those people at that date. They were formally released on the 25th, but they really didn't get much publicity until this week that we saw it come up on things like tax notes. 
so they actually drop on the IRS website at odd times. And it's yeah, it's just strange how they're there. But they are up. The PDFs are up on the IRS website now. So you can get every one of these. We have the links in the documents. You know, the PDF that we upload each week, these links are in the documents to get it there. So this one now is just a, appears to be just a standard taxpayer who wrote the IRS and said, look, you know, we, we, we want a ruling on deductibility of amounts that were paid for legal services. And this related to civil and criminal matters arising from your relationship with your former spouse and defensive title to property claimed by your former spouse. So shall we say messy divorce and messy continuing issues from messy divorce. And these guys are apparently, you know, going fast and furious and suing each other on, you know, various issues related to their former marriage. And unfortunately, that's something we see happen quite a bit. Um, you know, we've all probably seen those marriages where you know that the court fight will end only on the day that one or both run out of money to keep paying counsel because they're they're just furious at each other and they want to get even. And as long as they can fight, they'll fight until the time comes up. And the attorney says, well, we're not fighting anymore because you can't afford to pay me. And you know what? I, I fight when I'm paid, but you've pulled through, poured through all of your money. Tough luck, right? Sometimes clients are happy with that because their, their ex-spouse got poured through all their money too. And so, hey, we're great. Yeah, divorces can be very, very difficult. I think we'll phrase it that way to deal with. So, you know, be, be, be careful in that regard. Now, the IRS says, look, we're not going to actually, you know, and subject to this inquiry, we're not really going to give you a ruling per se, right? And we'll talk about why not in just a second. But rather, we're going to say, but we're going to discuss law generally. And they're saying, look, basically, letter notes, unless expressly allowed by law, an individual's personal living and family expenses are not deductible. And that comes under Section 262 of the Code. You cannot claim a deduction for personal living and family expenses. And they said legal expenses, uh, generally legal expenses would not be deductible under this category, kind of the types you're talking about, if they're paid in connection with civil or criminal charges resulting from a personal relationship, marriage, ex-former marriage, whatever, uh, property claims on property settlements in a divorce, and any defense of title to property. So let's be honest, they're effectively telling this whoever's writing for this, he or she, maybe they're both interested, that the answer is no. <laughs> Not going to be deductible. But then they also go on to remind us of something here. Right? That in the IRS cannot give binding informal advice. If you want to have advice on this issue, take a look at your facts, applying the law to them, and then get the IRS to say for sure, having stipulated the facts, the IRS doesn't confirm it, but you give them the facts, they apply the law, and they say, based on this, you know, where we would say that, yes, these are clearly personal expenses, non-deductible or no. In this situation, it appears that these expenses are deductible because of whatever theory you had for why they're deductible. But in order to get that binding answer, you have to apply for and pay for, which is probably the bigger side, a private letter ruling from the IRS. 
Now, like I said, in most cases with the facts in front of me here, my gut's telling me that the taxpayer doesn't want to apply for this ruling because the answer is going to be no. Unless there's some reason you want the IRS in writing to say the answer is no. You know, and I'm I'm sure there may be cases where somebody would be reimbursed for this because somebody told you it was okay. I'm not sure who did, but that that's fine. You know, if you want to have that no, then yes, you could. But normally we wouldn't ask for that. The only reason you'd ask for a ruling maybe in a case like this is if the client, you know, understanding that this is going to be pushing it, the theory, whatever we're doing here would be kind of out there. And the client might say, well, I'd like to get the deduction if I could. And the numbers are really big, uh, but I don't want to claim it if it's going to come back and haunt me and have to pay the tax and interest and penalties. So then you could see an application made. But 99% of the time, if the client says, I want to take the deduction as long as there's a reasonable basis for doing so, and we do disclosure, etc., it doesn't make sense to involve the national office. I mean, what you're doing by involving them at that point is pretty much assuring it'll be examined. You know, in essence, they're, they're going to get a look at it. While if you file and disclose, you know, yes, you're not allowed to rely on the audit lottery. And I mean, that is very clear. But you are allowed to consider it once the position is defensible, even if it might not win. And so rarely would you apply for a PLR unless that PLR is either going to be used for some sort of litigation issue you know, where somebody screwed up in some way and now you're going to point out that there is a tax liability there and the other party doesn't want to pay that unless the IRS effectively ruled that way. So you sometimes see rulings that are clearly meant for that. Or, you know, you have something where you have a proposed transaction and you'll do it if it clears IRS. You know, if IRS says, yep, good, that looks good, go forward, no tax consequence. But you won't do it or you'll restructure the transaction if the IRS said no. Those are the cases where you normally do a PLR or you're doing things like trying to get permission to do a late rollover that's not covered by the safe harbor into something like a retirement plan account or an IRA account. Those are the kind of situations where you'll do a PLR. But otherwise, you know, if basically if you're going to go ahead and do the transaction regardless of the answer the IRS gives without making any changes, then there's no point in asking. And that's kind of how this works. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of July 12, 2021. As always, it's brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I, As I tell you, I am monitoring a number of State Society discussion forums. So if you have any issues, you have any questions, uh, you can look in on me. Uh, if you're a member in Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Washington, Minnesota, and I also am watching in on Idaho. You may be able to kind of post something there. And if I think I can be of help, I'll try to, you know, kind of jump in on that. Also want to remind those of you in Arizona that I will be on the 22nd doing a two-hour session. That will go into detail. Yeah, two-hour session. That will go into detail of the end of session law changes that were passed by our legislature, as well as the proposition changes that came in November, looking at all the changes that would apply to 2021 income taxes, as well as the challenges to those changes. And, you know, that may or may not go through. It could be a kind of interesting issue. And we'll talk about tax planning 
for, for the state tax issues in an era of high uncertainty about what the real rules will be. So we'll talk about that. That's coming up on the 22nd. You can sign up for that, the Arizona Society of CPAs website. If you want to go there. Otherwise, I'll see you guys back here next week. Uh, hopefully we'll see what else comes out in the area of federal taxes. And we'll be back here to discuss whatever new and neat things that the IRS, the Congress, or the uh, courts manage to do in the next week.